Thank you, friends. I hope that you have enjoyed our time here at Lost Pines as much as Ken and I have. Oh my goodness, wasn't today beautiful? Did you get a chance to walk along the river? Ken and I did, and as we were listening to the wind in the trees and the blue sky, I'm singing in my heart, Oh, what a beautiful morning. Really, oh, what a beautiful day. I like to sing, what can I say? Everywhere I go, I love to sing. But I'm going to tell you a secret. I sing because I have to. I think back on darker days, when I was first injured, just a 17-year-old girl I was, I wanted in the dark in that hospital room so much to cry, but there was nobody around to wipe my tears, blow my nose, and it's bad enough being a quadriplegic without being a messy quadriplegic. So I'd stifle the tears and I would sing, Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry, while on others oh, thou art calling. Do not pass me by. It always reminded me of the Pool of Bethesda to sing that hymn. You know that story. In fact, when friends the next day would come to visit me with their Bibles and they would ask, do you want to read us anything from the Bible? I, I would always ask for John chapter 5. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool which is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, oh my goodness, Jesus thinks 38, wheels in a wheel, 38 years in a wheelchair is a long time. I wonder what he thinks of 45 years. Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? Then Jesus said to him, get up and walk. As often as I would picture myself there at the Pool of Bethesda, as often as I would imagine myself lying next to that man paralyzed for 38 years, perhaps on my own straw mat, I would see in my mind's eye Jesus come through the five covered colonnades, and in my heart of hearts I'm crying out in the dark, Jesus, Savior, do not pass me by. You're healing others, heal me. but I never got up and I never walked. When I was graduated out of that hospital and went home to live with my sister on our farm in Maryland, I'd heard tell there was gonna be a, a faith healing crusade over in Washington, D.C. at the Washington Hilton, there in the ballroom. It was gonna be Catherine Coleman. Some of you might not remember her. She was kind of a female Benny Hinn type. And I thought, that's where I'm going to go. That's where I'm going to get healed. My sister threw me on the front seat of our station wagon. We hiked over to Washington, D.C., got out. The ushers escorted us to the wheelchair section. And I'm looking up and down, and I'm seeing other people like me, women with multiple sclerosis, kids with cerebral palsy, others with severe arthritis, walkers, wheelchairs, white canes, walkers. And suddenly the music begins, 
And there, in a spotlight, Miss Kuhlman comes waltzing into the stage. And with an organ crescendo, the spotlight moves across the auditorium. And I see over there on the other side of the ballroom, oh my goodness, would you look at that? There must be some healings going on over there. People were shouting, clapping. The spotlight moved again slightly. And I'm thinking, Jesus, come over here where all the hard cases are. Come heal us. The service lasted about a couple of hours, but maybe 20 minutes before it ended, the ushers came to escort all of us in the wheelchair section out of the ballroom. And I could hear the music on the other side of the wall going on as I sat number 15 in a long line of 35 people at the elevator. And I'm looking up and down this line of people with their wheelchairs and their white canes and their walkers, and I'm thinking, something's wrong with this picture. Something's wrong. What kind of savior, what kind of healer, what kind of rescuer, what kind of deliverer would refuse the prayer of a paralytic? I was pretty demoralized when I got back to the farm, thinking to myself, okay then, I'm just not going to do this. I'm just not going to do this. I'm not going to live this way. And it wasn't long thereafter that a very bitter root and a real spirit of complaining began to take hold. Nothing anybody did for me was good enough. Nothing that my sister did. And every hurdle, every obstacle I faced became just an excuse to complain, an excuse to be angry, and an excuse to feel sorry for myself. I was Queen Johnny, off with your head if things didn't go my way. If I couldn't be healed, then it was tell my sister just to leave me in bed, turn out the lights, and shut the door. I'm not going to get out of bed. I'm not going to live as a quadriplegic. But even then, even in the darkness of my own bedroom, I found the same comfort in these old hymns I had learned as a kid in the Reformed Episcopal Church. And in the quiet of that bedroom, I would comfort my soul. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide, when darkness deepens. Lord, with me abide when other helpers fail and comforts flee. Help of the helpless soul, abide with me. And finally I cried, Oh God, if I can't die, please show me how to live. I don't want to go through the rest of my life depressed and feeling sorry for myself as a quadriplegic. Please show me how to live. And then, slowly, not overnight, the brighter days began to dawn. Days when my sister would get me up, put me in my wheelchair, push me out of that bedroom. She'd draw the draped sunlight into our house. She'd wheel me into the living room and, 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 and park my wheelchair in front of a, a music stand, a little like this one. And she'd plop on it a big Bible, put a mouth stick in my mouth. And there I would sit, 
flipping this way and that with my mouth stick, feverishly hoping somehow to find something that would aid me in making sense of it all. Of course, I, I was still interested in healing. I still wanted to know what the Bible had to say about it. And I found out in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, you know that story. There Jesus is performing all kinds of miracles, all kinds of healings throughout the day and long past sunset. The crowd there in Capernaum goes home, but the next morning the crowds return. Simon and his companions go running looking for Jesus, but he's nowhere to be found. That's because the Savior had gotten up early, earlier than those crowds had arrived, and gone up to the hill to pray. Finally, they find him and tell him about this crowd of diseased and disabled people at the bottom of the hill looking for healings. But Jesus replies in the 38th verse, let's go somewhere else, to the nearby villages where I can preach there also, for this is why I have come. Just like that. Turns us back on a whole crowd of diseased and disabled people, and I'm thinking, turning away from people like me, Jesus, people who just want your help? And that's when it hit me. It struck me that Jesus it's not that Jesus did not care about all those diseased and disabled people and all their problems, it's just that their problems were not his main focus. The gospel was. The gospel that says sin kills, hell is real, but God is merciful. His kingdom can change you and I am your passport. And whenever people miss this message, whenever they just flock to Jesus for the only purpose to get their pain and problems removed, the Savior would always back away. No wonder I'd been so depressed for so long. I was one of those who wanted to come to Jesus just to get my pain fixed, just to get my problems fixed, just to get my paralysis fixed. And yes, Jesus cares about suffering. He spent most of his time when he was on earth relieving it. But the Gospel of Mark showed me his priorities. Because the same Son of Man who healed blind eyes and healed withered hands is the same man who said, gouge out that eye, cut off that hand, if it leads you into sin. Whoa, I got the picture. To me, healing had always been the big deal. To God, my soul was a much bigger deal. And that's when I started searching for a deeper kind of healing. A Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart, Test me and see if there be some wicked way in me. Cleanse me from every sin and set me free. I want to be free.
for the last 45 years in this wheelchair, that has been my prayer. And God has been answering, exposing things in my heart from which I need to get healed because I am far from finished. God is still searching. God is still testing. My husband, Ken, and I recently wrote a book when we crested 30 years in marriage last year. It's called Johnny and Ken, an untold love story. And in every step of the way, every page of that book, with my quadriplegia, ideal now, being older, ideal daily with chronic pain, every step has been a tough, earnest, rugged, rigorous reliance on Jesus Christ. Even in marriage, especially in marriage, God is not so much interested in removing the pain and the problems. He's more interested in removing, well, remember that bitter root I told you about, that complaining spirit, that attitude that nothing anybody ever did was good enough? Well, it was early on in our marriage, in the first couple of years, and Ken started to struggle with the daily, 24-7, non-stop, dreary routines of my disability. Even though I had girlfriends to assist, still there was that psychological pressure. I could see it in his eyes. One night, he sat on the edge of our bed and shook his head and said, Johnny, I'm depressed. I've been depressed for over a year and I don't know how I'm gonna get out of it. I am so depressed and I'm so trapped. Out of nowhere, out of the pit of my heart, I spat out, well, what were you thinking when we got married? Didn't you know I was a quadriplegic? Didn't you realize it was gonna be this hard? Didn't you understand? As soon as those words tumbled out of my mouth, I was so sorry I had said them. I knew it was the wrong thing to say. And I quickly apologized. Oh, Ken, I said, that, that's just not like me to say that. I, really, that, that, that's not like me at all. But you know what? It is like me. It is just like me. And so God does not remove the hardships. He permits, he purposes, he ordains, he designs, he allows those pain, those problems. They become the lemon that he squeezes, always revealing the spitefulness and the selfishness that is often hidden from view. I don't like that. We don't like that. But I need that. Search me, O oh God. Test me and try me and see what offensive way is in me. Show me the sin of which I am daily capable. And so in those, as Ken and I now look back, calling them the, quote, tired middle years of our marriage, I learned to sing a different song of healing. Praying for my depressed husband, there is a balm in Gilead 
that makes the wounded whole. There is a bone in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. My quadriplegia keeps squeezing the lemon, revealing the not-so-pretty stuff of which I am made and replacing it with patience. God bless perseverance, endurance, stamina, spirit-sent strength. And in the last 10 years or so of our marriage, chronic pain has squeezed that lemon even more. I remember when I was in the worst of my pain and listening to Frances tonight brought it all home with the pain she endures with her Lyme's disease. When I was in the worst of my pain, and I'm talking about mind-bending, jaw-splitting pain, Ken had to get up extra times to turn me at night because as a quadriplegic, I lay in a certain position and then in order to avoid pressure sores, he has to get up and turn me. <clears throat> one night, he had to get up many times to turn me. And then one night stretched into two and then another week and then two weeks of getting up two and three times to turn me. Finally, one night before we turned out the lights, after he had tucked my pillows, he sat on the edge of the bed, much like that time years earlier, and confessed, I have no strength for this. I can't do this. I feel trapped. This time, my response, Oh, sweetheart, if I were you, I'd feel exactly the same way. If I were you, I would feel exactly the same way. So I don't fault you, I don't scold you, and I just want you to know I understand. I want you to know I'm going to cheer you on through this. I'm going to pray with you through this. We're going to get through this. God is going to help us through this, and I think you're doing great. You are doing great. And suddenly, it was like this huge weight had lifted off my husband's shoulders. Anxiety, fear of the future, what if things get worse? It was a huge turning point in our marriage because God was doing a healing, a deeper healing, not just in me, but in both of us. And over 30 years of living together with my quadriplegia and chronic pain, Ken and I have discovered, I tell you, we have discovered a love that holds on through it all, but sometimes by a thread. We've learned that the strongest relationships are earned. They are tested and they don't come easy, but they are earned. They are tested by pain and frustration and sometimes those relationships are pushed to the breaking point like three years ago when I got breast cancer, stage three breast cancer. I remember after my mastectomy, Ken and my friend Judy, one of those girlfriends who helped a lot with my daily routines, Ken and Judy and I were sitting in the office of my medical oncologist, who with his clipboard was listing through the litany of things that I was to expect as a quadriplegic going through six rounds of chemotherapy. 
He said, well, Johnny, we'll have to send you back to the hospital and surgically insert a catheter port in your chest. You'll be given highly toxic, poisonous drugs. That means your bones, which are already fragile, will become more fragile. Probably you may break a bone. Your bladder will no doubt get many infections. You'll probably have lung infections. You'll lose your hair, you'll get nauseous. He was called out of the office. He got up, closed the door. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. I started sobbing. And my friend Judy quickly got up to bury my head in her chest to comfort me. But in that instant, I sensed my husband also rise out of his chair. And he wedged himself gently between Judy and me and said, I'll take over. It was music to my ears. Was this the same man who just years earlier was happy to let Judy do absolutely everything as it concerned my disability routines? No, this was not. This was not the same man. This was Kentada transformed from glory to glory. Because in all those years, even when he was depressed, we read the Bible together, we prayed together, we sought Jesus earnestly, needing him desperately. And the lessons we have learned in more than two decades of quadriplegia and pain prepared us to battle cancer. It was not unlike what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 12. If you are worn out in a foot race with men, what makes you think you can race against horses? My battle with quadriplegia and chronic pain for all those years has been a foot race against men. But my cancer is a race against horses. And with every squeeze of that lemon, through the testing and through the trying, we are able to let go of worry, let go of fear of the future, things which, by the way, are just as offensive to God as spitefulness or selfishness. And the harder Ken and I are squeezed, the harder we lean on Jesus, discovering an intimacy and sweetness we'd never known before then up in our marriage. So don't be thinking that I'm the expert. Don't be thinking even when I travel to these countries to give mobility equipment and Bibles and trained physical therapists and when we hold family retreats. No, don't, don't be thinking that I'm the professional at this. I'm no veteran at this. I will tell you, honestly, 95% of the time when I wake up in the morning, even after all these years, I can hear my girlfriend in the kitchen running water for coffee. I know she's gonna come into my bedroom and give me a happy-hearted hello and put my legs through range of motion exercises, give me a bed bath, do my toileting routine, cinch on my corset, pull up my pants, sling me into a wheelchair, push me into the bathroom, brush my teeth, blow my nose, brush my hair, and I am lying there in bed. God, I am so tired of this. I am so tired of quadriplegia. I am tired of this pain. I cannot do it. I have no strength for it but you do. 
I cannot do quadriplegia, but I can do all things through you if you would but strengthen me today. So please, Jesus, I need you desperately. Would you show up in my life? This girlfriend's gonna come through my bedroom in a moment with a cup of coffee and a happy hello and a beautiful smile. And I can't be, I can't be grumpy. I, give me your smile. May I please borrow your smile? And I tell you, by the time she comes in that bedroom by 7.35 in the morning, I have joy hard fought for and sent straight from heaven. And it's wonderful. And maybe the really handicapped people are the ones who, when their alarm clock goes off, throw back the covers, jump out of bed, scarf down breakfast, take a fast shower, zoom out the front door and automatic cruise control. Did you know that even as a Christian, if you live life that way, God is against you? James chapter four, verse six, he opposes the proud. And you know who the proud are. People who think they can do this Christian life without daily reliance on Jesus. Like, okay, Jesus, I, I, I accepted you as my savior some years back, and I've been reading the Bible, and I promise I'm not gonna do anything today that's gonna stain your reputation or smear your good name, but you know, I, I, I kinda got this Christian thing figured out, so you know, I'll, I'll get ahead with my day, but if there's any great need in my life, I'll know who to go to. If you live life that way, God is against you. But, but, and I love the rest of James chapter four, verse six, he gives grace, grace to the humble. Grace upon grace. And who are the humble? Just people who recognize their desperate need of Jesus. When we were delivering wheelchairs in Africa some time ago, I never, never forget wheeling into our distribution center and there was a man who drug himself into the center. He had polio, his legs were dragging behind him. He was walking on his hands, had shoes on his hands, and he recognizes me, and he leans back on his haunches, spreads wide his arms, and says, oh, Johnny, welcome to our country where God is so much bigger. And he's bigger because we need him more. God always seems bigger to those who need him most. So Ken and I are grateful for this disability, the pain, yes, even the pain, and yes, especially the cancer. All of it helps us stay so hungry for the bread of heaven, so incredibly thirsty for the living water. Suffering keeps waking us up out of our spiritual slumber, reminding us that we are not the spiritual paragons of virtue that we'd like to think we are. No, suffering is the textbook that teaches us who we really are, revealing the stuff of which we are made, and often that's not very pretty. So suffering sandblasts us strips us bare of our sinful ways, leaving us, our souls, so raw and exposed and vulnerable. But when your soul is exposed and vulnerable, you can then be better bonded. You can be hot glued to the heart of your Savior. And then when your heart gets beating in rhythm with his, oh my goodness, you cannot help but feel his pleasure and his favor and his approval. He syringes joy into your spiritual veins and your life becomes a life of joy. His strength, his joy, his grace 
comes cascading over, over heaven's walls, spilling up and splashing out of your heart, rushing out to others in streams of encouragement, and then, and then rising back to the Father in an ecstatic fountain of praise. Praise the Lord, my King of heaven, at his feet thy tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, who like thee his praise we sing. Hallelujah, hallelujah, praise the everlasting King. We are, as it says, 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We are poor, but yet making many rich. We have nothing and yet possess everything. Jesus Christ is ecstasy beyond compare and it is worth anything to be his friend, no matter what the suffering. One day when Ken was driving me home from chemotherapy, we were going down the 101 freeway and we started talking about how suffering is like a little splash over of hell. Kind of like, whoa, 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 waking you up out of your spiritual slumber, reminding you of what Christ ultimately rescues you from. And so as we pulled up into the driveway and Ken turned off the ignition, he looks at me in the rearview mirror and says, so what do you think? What do you think splash overs of heaven are? Are they those easy, breezy, bright days where everything is fine, where all the bills are paid? where there is no pain. In the quiet, we decided, no. Splashovers of heaven are finding Jesus in your splashover of hell. Nothing is sweeter. Nothing is more intimate and precious and joyful than finding Jesus in your hell. People often ask, don't you think cancer on top of pain on top of quadriplegia is, quote, too much. Is it too much for me? Would it be too much for you? Were that God's choice of lemon in your life? Ah, 1 Peter chapter 2 says, to this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Oh man, I want to follow in his steps. Human inclination will not take me to the road to Calvary, but suffering like a sheepdog will snap at my heels, driving me there. And oh, the joy and the peace I find at the cross, laying down sin and receiving his sanctification. I want to follow in his steps because if he learned obedience to the things that he suffered, am I above my master? I don't think so. On the front of your generous giving programs, there's this lovely photograph that we've been looking at. A man with widespread arms in a field of wheat. And the Bible verse at the bottom of your program on the cover is Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. Oh man. I want to buy the field. But I tell you what, for many of us, perhaps most of us, the field doesn't look like a field of wheat. It looks like a dirty sand lot 
with crushed, broken bottles, beer cans, old tires, and rusty refrigerators. It's ugly. But oh, the treasure that is there. God is still searching me, Ken and me both, testing and trying, and see if they're, seeing if there being any offensive way in me. It is why you will often hear me quoting from the confession of the Book of Common Prayer on which I was raised as a child in the Reformed Episcopal Church. Almighty God, we have erred and strayed from thy ways. We have left to we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have left undone those things which you ought to have done, and we have done those things which you ought not to have done, and there is no help in us. Have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. I love those words, but I tell you, I hate those words. I can't wait for the day when I will be in heaven. And don't be thinking that a new body is what I'm most looking forward to. Uh Uh-uh. No, I'm looking forward to the new heart. A heart that will no longer twist the truth or resist God or look for an escape or becomes anxious or worrisome or tries to justify feeling sorry for myself. Oh, that will be glory for me, glory for me, glory for me, when by his grace I shall look on his face. That will be glory, be glory for me. It is a message that we give to suffering people around the world at Johnny and Friends. All those diseased and disabled people still at the bottom of the hill looking for help and hope. I'm the most blessed quadriplegic you'll ever meet. There is no quadriplegic on this earth who is more blessed than I am. I have been given so much by God. I've got a wonderful husband. I've got a great mission to accomplish. I've got reasonable health, bar it cancer. Oh my goodness, I want to squeeze every ounce of ministry opportunity out of this body that I possibly can to make certain that one more person with a disability in some developing nation hears about the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the message we give people with disabilities, but I tell you what, it's a message for you. From 1 Peter chapter 4, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he lives for the will of God. And what is God's will? Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 says it best. Do everything without complaining. Some time ago, my husband and I had a chance to uh, visit the Holy Land. And it was a wonderful time, oh my goodness, getting to tour all these places where Jesus had walked. There was one particular day where um, Ken did not tell me the itinerary. All I knew that we was going to the old city of Jerusalem. So we go through the Jaffa Gate, and I'm in my wheelchair, and Ken bumpity bump bump bumps me down the Via Della Rosa. He, when you're in a wheelchair, you don't go up the Via Della Rosa, you go down the Via Della Rosa. And we go past the bazaar, the cobblestones underneath of me, and I look on the right, and there's the Temple Mount and the Sheep Gate, make a left-hand turn, walk down a gravel path, Ken wheels me past St. Anne's Church, and then all of a sudden, oh my, oh my goodness, would you look at this? Ken, Ken, look, 
Look, it's the, it's the pool of Bethesda. Oh my goodness, Ken, you wouldn't believe how many times when I used to be in the hospital, I would picture myself here and I, I can't believe God's brought me here. The place was empty. All of Benny Hinn's tour buses were down at the Dead Sea. It was a dry, breezy day, warm and quiet. The place was empty. We had it all to ourselves. Ken hopped the guardrail and went down to one of the cisterns to see if there really was still water in the pool of Bethesda. But I take my elbow and I'm leaning on the guardrail, staring down into this pool. started cascading down my face. God had waited all that time to bring me to the actual pool of Bethesda so that I might have a chance to tell him, thank you. Because a no request for physical healing meant yes to a far deeper healing than I ever imagined. A healing that has purged a sin from my life, forced me to depend on grace, increased my compassion for other people who hurt, fostered sensitivity, put complaining behind me, stretched my hope, pushed me to give thanks in times of sorrow, a, a, a deeper healing that has given me a buoyant, happy hope of heaven, and an earnest reliance on Jesus Christ each and every morning. Oh, Jesus, you are so kind, you are so gracious, you are so, so wise. Thank you for the deeper healing. Maybe tonight you see yourself at a pool of Bethesda. Number 12 in a long line of people wanting to get your problems fixed. Wanting Jesus to take away the pain. Wanting him to remove the hardship. Wondering why God hasn't fixed things yet. Well, God may remove your suffering. And if so, that will be great cause for rejoicing. But if not, he will use it to remove anything and everything that stands in the way of his fellowship with you. So let God have his way. Let him mold you and make you and transform you from glory to glory. That is the deeper healing. And you don't have to break your neck to receive it. I want you to close with me in prayer, singing a hymn that I think most of you will probably remember, but sing it softly as a quiet confession before God and as a covenant with him to do everything without complaining. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. And let's do the Amen. Amen.
Now. God bless you, friends, and thanks for listening.